Hi everybody, I'm Ashwin. And I'm Raj. And this is Blood Cancer Talks. And today we are excited to talk about a measurable residual disease in AML. We have an expert, Dr. Christopher Corrigan, who is a professor of medicine at the National Institute of Health. He's also chief of the laboratory of myeloid malignancies at the National Institute of Health um, and NHBI. Dr. Oregon, uh, before we start, can you tell us about yourself and your clinical and research focus? Sure, yeah. So, um, so you, you described it well. You know, I spend most of my time uh, running a lab at the uh, National Institutes of Health in Bethesda, Maryland, uh, where we focus on MRD and AML. Um, I still attend clinically on the inpatient service at, at Johns Hopkins uh, a month a year, uh, which is where I trained uh, and have done for the... Uh, uh, the past few years, and that's a that's an important uh, side hustle I keep up. Uh, you know, it's it's very. Uh, I, I don't want to be the kind of scientist who solves problems that no one cares about on the wards. Uh, and really, the goal of what we try and do is, you know, is not to make papers. It's we want to change the guidelines. We want the resident or the fellow coming in to print out the NCCN or whatever it is, and there's a little arrow that tells them what to do, and we've helped build the evidence for that arrow. And so that's my lab is very, my lab's mainly uh, PhD scientists, although we do have uh, a fair number of physician scientists and physicians, um, but they're all very attuned to that idea that what we're working towards is to make, make us all better doctors and make, uh, help us make better decisions for patient care. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hergen, for that excellent introduction. Uh, with that, uh, let us jump right in. Um, I think the first question is, um, what is a measurable residual disease in AML? And can you please um, give us a 10,000 foot view? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, and you know, this is great. You're doing this podcast. I hope you're, you're on for hours because I can talk for hours about this. This is all I ever, this is all I ever do. And I think it's, um, it's, you know, it's obviously a real passion for me, but I think it's, it's starting to get traction as something that could be useful. So essentially, you know, we do these amazing things in medicine. And I think in uh, those of you looking after blood cancer patients know we do incredible things like a bone marrow transplant, which is, you know, we're, we're comfortable with, but when you take a step back and think of it from a member of the public, it's really one of the most incredible things we do in, in medicine, where we, we're changing someone's hematopoietic system and their immune system uh, in an attempt to cure, uh, uh, to cure their disease. But the ways we look to see if, our therapy has been successful. And we're now in this area of targeted and genome informed uh, uh, therapies is the same kind of thing we did in 1950, you know, when they were first treating acute leukemia here at the NIH Clinical Center and trying uh, multi-agent chemotherapy and in, in acute leukemia or undifferentiated, right? It's taking, taking these kids with acute leukemia. It's the same kind of response criteria. We, we you know, we take a marrow, we take a sampling of blood um, and for a metastatic, stage four cancer, essentially, if we want to make the analogy with solid tumors, we're taking a small sampling and we're making an assumption that that represents the total body burden of disease. And so it, it, it was always, you know, from the time as a resident onwards on the wards, uh, was always um, uh, striking to me that we really fight and do these incredible things. You know, if we have people in the ICU, we have them on three presses, we get them through, we're antifungals, we get them through, we get that remission. And then next time you rotate on service, you see them back eight months later with a relapse. And you say, well, well you know, hang on, that, that was a complete remission. What's going on? And, you know, I remember my boss 
you know, uh, Judy Cup saying, oh, honey, there's nothing complete about a complete remission. And I said, well, well why, why is that the goalpost then? What are, what are we doing? And so measurable residual disease is really, you know, something that's been known about and, you know, intellectually understood for 40 or 50 years. This idea that if we look harder at the biological sample of a human being with better techniques, we may get a better appreciation of how much cancer they have left in the body. And it's something that, you know, I, it's one of those things, it's like statistics, everyone has a gut feeling that's the right thing. And, uh, you know, I, I think a man on the street would say, a uh, man or woman on the street would say, of course you want to look as hard as possible with that sample you take to the lab. Um, but it's really been a question of uh, matching those tools and that technology to the clinical outcomes. Uh, and uh, it's not just a question of, you know, you just need to look really hard. Um, there's a, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of nuance there to really, uh, get it adopted into clinical practice, but the big picture, 10,000 foot view is when we look at hundred or 200 cells and try and make a claim about a human with five liters of blood or 70, 80 kilos of, of human, we're going to be wrong a lot of the time when we say people are in a remission. And if we looked harder either by taking a better sample or using better tools would be able to say some of those people who were calling in a remission aren't in a remission and they're at higher risk of not relapse really of just that refractory disease becoming clinically evident right so um that's the idea of measurable residual disease um is you know if we had better tools we as doctors could make better um uh, stratifications of patients into those where they really had a good treatment response and those where they're not done and they're still easily detectable disease if we just look a little bit harder. Thanks for the great explanation. Yeah, and uh, as you know, minimal or measurable residual disease is uh, not only in AML, but in other heme malignancies like myeloma. It's, it's a hot topic right now. So, uh, you know, going into another thing, that, you know, we, we hear a lot of terminologies like minimal residual disease or measurable residual disease. Can you clarify the significance of these terms or, or which term do you prefer using? Yeah, absolutely. So I think maybe... Um... You know, I've been 10 years doing this now at the NIH and I, you know, as I reflect back, I think um, uh, one of the few things I've managed to get our quite conservative profession to do is change the language we use. And so, um, you know, there's nothing minimal about minimal residual disease. If this was a, uh, if you imagine someone presenting on a Friday night with acute leukemia, with a, you know, a grateful, a grapefruit of disease, if this was a solid tumor, um, in the CR setting, they may still have a grape of disease, if we could use the food analogy, right? If you were scanning them on a CT scan and this was a lung cancer, you'd see something the size of a grape. Um, and so there's nothing, there's nothing minimal about that. That's disease that's untreated, that's refractory disease to the therapy. Um, and so what we're really talking about is not a complete assessment of the patient. It's a sampling we take. And is there evidence in the sampling we take of disease still left in the patient? And so that's measurable. And I think words matter. And I think uh, some of the um, some of the misconceptions about MRD in hemolysis really come from just not having a rigorous uh, thought process of what we're, what we're really talking about here. We're measuring not the patient, we're measuring a sample from that patient. And so we're always going to be limited by the sample we take. And so it, it, it's really te it's MRD testing is what we're talking about. It's not a patient being MRD negative or positive. 
It's the test result on the sample we took being MRD. And in that kind of context, then it's much more sense to talk about measurable residual disease in the sample we're evaluating. And so hopefully we've convinced, I think there's one, there's one agency I haven't managed to convince to change their language yet. I mean, I, I can't, you know, I'll say, I should have prefaced this by saying I speak for myself on this podcast rather than for any, uh, any government agency, although I work for a government agency. Um, but in general, I think the, um, uh, the people who think about this kind of thing a lot have switched to measurable residual disease um, uh, as being a more correct term for MRD. Thank you, Chris, for that excellent analogy. And uh, I love the phrase that there's nothing complete about a complete remission and there is uh, nothing minimal about the measurable residual disease. I, I love it. Um, as you know, um, one of the criteria for um, uh, response in ELN classification is complete remission without MRD. Um, but you know, we, we do have that criteria, but there is significant technical as well as considerable logistical challenges to use MRD in routine clinical use. And one of the challenges is methodologies to identify the MRD name. Um, so can you please describe about different methodologies? Yeah, so I think this is, um, this is the major focus of now as a, now that I have tenure and I'm not, um, uh, I can really- uh, Congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. So, you know, when it's tenure for the lab, you know, it's not for me, you know, I was already had a pretty stable job as a physician in the government before, but now it's really the lab has funding and we can really go after a really, you know, ambitious goals and uh, beyond, you know, papers every year. And I think, frankly, physicians have been let down by the MRD tests they have available to them. When I go on the wards, I can't order a test that's as good as a 21-year-old college graduate can do in my lab, in my research lab. And we just, the incentives haven't been aligned to really have high-quality testing available. It's a rare disease. Uh, care is distributed throughout the country, throughout, uh, you know, throughout multiple centers. Um, we don't have harmonized benchmark testing. You know, I, I never have to ask about how the CBC with DIFF was done. Right. In practice, when I'm on the wards, I don't say, ah, but did you use, you know, was this a culture counter or was this a, you know, <laughs> I never do that. I just get the diff, right? I just get the results. And I say, is it a manual diff or is it an auto automated diff? And that's it. Right. Um, and the same with, you know, same with the chemistry panel. I'm not asking, you know, you know, well, how is, you know, what's the calculation on that sodium? Uh, but with MRD, we're still in these early days where it's really essentially research labs and pathologists with, a, with an LDT or with, you know, expanding their clinical practice from flow. And so we have these people where, you know, there's really great expertise and there's people where they're doing it as part of a portfolio of tests they offer. Um, but there, there hasn't been a, um, uh, a structure where we can have benchmarked harmonized testing in the way we could in other diseases. And I think part of that is because, you know, there's, there's no disease that's AML, right? That's a label we put on our many, many diseases. And, you know, Raj made, made the point of a, uh, uh, MRD has been impactful in myeloma and uh, lymphoid diseases. And I would say the key difference there, although flow has been a key part of uh, MRD in those diseases, is that you have this rearranged immune receptor that can be used for tracking. It is essentially a barcode. If I was designing a way to do MRD, I would design ALL or myeloma, right? I would put a rearranged gene sequence in, which is detects the clone. Um, and really makes it, you know, you know, so you have excellent NGS tests now, which show great concordance with flow cytometry in ALL and, and myeloma. And you have an FDA approved 
uh, test for NGS, as well as very high quality uh, flow labs. Uh, um, and you're, you're really solving a different problem where you're really at the limits of sample distribution in myeloid and ALL. It's, it's a completely different problem. You have very good concordance between the tests down to that level. AML is different, right? So AML, genetically heterogeneous. Uh, we have these combinations of somatic mutations. The immunophenotype can be different within one person. We know it's a, it's a polyclonal disease. And so we do have these... Um, discordances even within one patient over time during treatment. And so there's not one, you can't run the one uh, in the goblin rearranged uh, NGS panel to get to get the answer right. There's a reason. And so the, the, the reason there's a consensus guidelines in the ELN is because there's not a clear answer, right? If, it was, if there was a clear answer, there would be a one sentence statement in the ELN AML guidelines saying, just use the test, right? Just use the BCR angle. And, uh, you know, but the fact there isn't is the reason why there's a whole committee, you know, so the ELN guidelines you'll notice was, you know, updated, just re recently updated now, but was when it was updated in 2017, um, they punted the question to a subcommittee, to the NLMRD subcommittee to address what that response criteria meant. And that's, a, I'm on that subcommittee. Um, if you ever get a group of 24 physicians who do one thing, you've got to have 25 different opinions on the right thing to do, right? And no one votes against their technique. And so, you know, I've learned a lot personally, just professionally on how consensus guidelines are made. And it's, you know, uh, I would say nobody agrees with everything in those consensus guidelines. And one of the things we're, we're pushing in the ELN is, um, is making it more explicit how the decision-making process happens in terms of the evidence base and the, um, uh, the how a consensus is formed. It can't be eminence-based. It can't be, oh, you know, Chris thinks about this all the time. Let's just say what, you know, Chris thinks, right? Like, you know, like what is the evidence base? How are we making the decisions? How many people agree on a first round? So we did this two-stage voting for consensus guidelines. Um, and what we could agree with um, was, there's not enough evidence. It's a rare heterogeneous disease, but there are some points of general agreement you know, between flow cytometrists, between molecular people, between clinical people. And you know the things that were informative were APL, uh, where ironically, we probably don't need MRD as much anymore. Now we have highly effective therapy. It's, you know, it's become less, but you know, the, uh, the experience of the, you know, tracking the 1517 translocation which again, I'd say is analogous to CML, to ALL, to, to, uh, to myeloma, where you really have a pathognomonic thing you can track. Um, uh, you should track that, you'd be crazy not to. And there's well-designed qPCR assays that, you know, there's this great work in the Europe Against Cancer Consortium in the, uh, in the 90s and 2000s, where they really worked out, hey, this is the assay you should use, just use that. And so we have a good evidence base, you should use that. The core binding factor, I think there's a general agreement on the same thing that for uh, 821 and version 16, you should use the qPCR assay. There's good evidence from uh, uh, several uh, national level European groups about what that means. It's, you know, it's by no means a perfect test and it wished, you know, we can talk more about, you know, what these tests will do for you, but uh, the evidence that is available is on QPS, qPCR testing. So you should use that. And then NPM1, the, um, uh, the Brits actually, um, you know, there's the IV paper for, uh, for NPM1 with the MRC experience, um, but there, there is a qPCR assay. Um, it's sometimes trickier by flow, given the, you know, often 34 negative. It's, it's a, you know, so the, the consensus was for NPM1, you should also use qPCR. 
And then for everything else, we said you should do SWOT. And there's there's exceptions to that rule, obviously. You know, if you've got a rare case of a BCR able AML, you know, great, you know, go for it. You use that test. But for most other cases, we said you you should use flow, knowing that um, there's wide variation in how flow is done. Um, we tried to set some just basic standards of, you know, if you want to, you know, you want to have a high sensitivity test, you need to be counting enough cells. You know, the denominator needs to be bigger, big enough to, to make an MRV test. You know, you need to use at least these fluorochromes and these antibodies in a, in a panel, just basic uh, uh, testing. The next stage is really come to how we can get concordance between labs, how we can have a harmonization program. So we're, we, we, we think we're measuring the same things between labs. Um, but that's the essential ELN recommendations. Um, I co-chair the NGS committee with Peter Bork, my colleague Peter Bork from the Hogan Group. And we've, you know, you would think we were advocates, we deliberately resisted in the latest ELN update, including NGS, because everyone loves it, the idea, and everyone, you know, wants it to be true. But, you know, I think there's such a high bar of responsibility to say exactly what these tests can do for someone. And we just both, we, you know, on that committee, we just felt that the evidence base wasn't there yet. And we really needed to generate an evidence base. So, you know, so you, you don't need to think any more than you would about a CBC or a Ken panel. You can just say, okay, yeah, I know that's the test. You know, I know what the right test to run is. And I know what that does for me when I'm talking to a patient. And we didn't feel we could, um, we could honestly say based on the evidence base available, we have anecdotes, but we don't have a robust enough data set to use NGS. It will for sure be in future guidelines. Um, but at the at the time of the uh, writing of the most recent ELN guidelines, uh, NGS wasn't wasn't included as a as a standard. What? Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Now, what I was surprised was there's no inclusion of FLIP3 ITD or TKD in the ELN guidelines, given that we have a targeted agents and we also know that you know these are the mutations which can potentially cause relapse yeah. after you know induction as well as transplant. Um, I'm curious to know your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I agree. And, you know, we went, um, I, again, again, we're going to talk about that later, but we went all in recently to, to, uh, to generate enough data, right, to, to do hundreds of patients with a, with a FLIT3ITD mutation, because it's critically important. Um, I think it's, they're, they're an interesting class of mutations, you know, just to, just to uh, you know, my clinical boss is Mark Levis, who is Mr. FLIT3ITD, right? So, you know, I, you know, I, talked to, uh, to Mark a fair bit about, uh, you know, he made one of the early tests, which has now been adopted into a clinical test. Um, uh, you know, it's an interesting mutation in that if it's present in remission, um, it seems to have a high positive predictive value for relapse. And we know FLIT3ITD, you know, relapse quickly and come back. And so, you know, if, if you do detect that, uh, there, there seems to be a high rate of, um, of relapses, clinical relapse following shortly afterwards. Um, uh, I think the issue in the area of targeted therapy and the FDA guidelines actually makes this point, which I think is a good one, is that we can't only track the target of the therapy in an area of targeted therapy. Uh, we know people on FLT3 inhibitors can relapse with a KIT clone or a RAS clone or a, you know, a BRAF clone. Um, and so we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't rely on that. So it's, it's in that class of useful if positive. Um, but I wouldn't use it as a as a as a rule out uh, for the presence of residual disease because there, there can be subclones that can come through, and we know just in the, those late proliferative mutations are great if you detect them. But you know, I wouldn't be falsely reassured by not detecting one. Uh, got it. Got it. Thank you. 
Um, do you see or envision that um, in the future, once we have enough data, um, that uh, the NGS or qPCR testing being complementary with uh, multicolor flow cytometry? Yeah, so you know, I um, I think this is a a question we need to get solved. I you know, I think. Um, there has been this story, and you know, I, and this was partly Peter's paper in the New England Journal, where he was asked to, and you know, I've had many people claim credit for being the reviewer that asked this question because it's opened up this whole field. You know, it's like uh, I'm Spartacus, I'm Spartacus. You know, uh, you know, one of the people who told me was uh, Eli Esty, who was a dear mentor to me, who uh, you know, uh, who passed away uh, recently. Yeah. Said, you know, he read that paper and said it's clearly important, but it's also the Hovum group who has great high quality flow. Show me the flow. And just for people who haven't looked at that figure, which I, I get referred to all the time, it seemed to be there was a, uh, an increased risk if you were positive for NGS in remission. There was an increased risk if you're positive for flow. But if you're positive for both, that seems to be the worst in that. In that. And there was a post-hoc non-planned analysis, um, and very small numbers in the double positive group. Um, and so there was this sense we're missing some patients with um, uh, with NGS that we could get by flow and that you know, the double positive were really bad ones. What's not, you know, what's not um, uh, covered in that paper just by the design of the paper was it's a targeted DNA sequencing panel. And so the kind of things it wouldn't get in terms of MRD detection would be things like the core binding factors we just talked about, the 821s, the inversion 16s. And when I when I talked to Peter Volk, he says, oh yeah, of course. Like when you look at the ones that were missed by NGS and caught by flow, there were the core binding factors where they, you wouldn't get those on a panel. Um, and also the complex carrier type without a P53 mutation wouldn't be caught by the panel. And so, you know, some of those discordances are actually pretty, you know, a clinician would say we're pretty self-evident. You know, of course, you're not going to catch it if the target is on the panel. Um, you know, if you happen to have a kit mutation in an 821, yeah, maybe you're catching an NGS panel, but those mutations come and go very fast to the proliferative mutation. So, um, some of the discordance I think can be worked out. And there was a nice paper in leukemia a few years ago where they had 200 sequential patients who um, uh, didn't go to transplant uh, on the whole, uh, showing just exactly where those discordances come from. And it, a lot of it's a lot of it's evident, uh, you know, things you would you would imagine and, and could be covered uh, um, by that. But for sure, I think there will be an, a future where NGS testing is what we do for. AML-MRD. Um, I think that that future is coming very soon, and uh, uh, we're increasingly getting targeted agents for ITD, for MPM1 now. There's at least two classes of agent targeting MPM1s. Uh, and of course, you know, IDH1, IDH2, although the, the significance of detecting those variants, uh, you know, is a little in question. Um, uh, so for sure, there'll be a time, and, you know, that's what we're working towards, where the fellow can order the NGS MRD panel, um, whether it's a generic fixed panel, and it will be a you know a consensus panel of these are things you track, or whether it's a patient personalized panel, with this is what your patient had, this is the subclones your patient had, and here's a cassette of things which can come back and hurt you. You know, here's a P53. You can always relapse with a P53 after some therapy. Here's a, you know here's P53. Here's a, here's some things you don't want to miss. Um, uh, I think uh, that future is coming. How flow fits with that, I don't know. I think we have to let the evidence guide us. Um, 
there's great expertise. And I think um, as I, you know, as I mature and get older as uh, someone trying to push change, I realize that, you know, just, you know, we're a conservative profession and where there's pockets of expertise, we really need to uh, empower those pockets of expertise, right? So it'd be crazy to throw away flow when we have these great experts who are great at flow, uh, just because we have the latest and greatest new test that comes along in NGS. And so um, the goal is to give better tools for physicians to treat patients better. And so if, if the route to that is sometimes through flow, sometimes through NGS, well, that's the, you know, that's maybe the path we get there. Yeah. Thank you for that. And one thing, one other question I had um, in terms of you say you say that NGS should be the test going forward. I think one challenge we face is how to distinguish from the CH mutations we see from residual disease because there is strong data already generated that having a CH mutation after transplant or after your consolidation therapy, they do not carry any prognostic significance in terms of relapse or overall survival. How do we you know, uh, understand how, to, how we need to distinguish the CH mutations from residual disease? Yeah, so um, I would go further. I'd say we shouldn't use them at all in isolation. And so by CH mutations, I predominantly mean DNMT3A and TET2. Uh, I think the XX of one thing was still we're still working out. Is that always uh, is that always true? Uh, but certainly, you know, DNMT3 mutations are common in patients with aging, right? So it's close to ten percent of uh, seventy-year-olds will have DNMT3 or a TET2. Um, I've certainly had the experience of treating someone for leukemia and giving them clonal hematopoiesis when they have a CR, right? So I, I treated a I treated a man uh, here on a clinical protocol who had a multiply relapsed uh, inversion 16 leukemia. And, um, you know, you come to a trial at the NIH, you've got to get some MRD, right? So a research MRD. So, you know, he had a nice uh, CR to experimental therapy, um, completely cleared the inversion 16 to research, to clinical grade testing, but also our uh, above and beyond research testing. But what came back was DNMT3 and TET2. And that was actually as normal hematopoiesis just had those mutations growing back and were then evident uh, in, a, in a CR. And so it would have been, you know, it would have been wrong and foolish to track those. They're actually, we did single cell sequencing to show they weren't even part of the leukemic clone. Um, it was actually completely independent leukemic clone. So it would have been, uh, it would have been the wrong thing to do to track them as somehow, uh, you know, disease related. They're actually, that's the good marrow you want to grow back. Um, and that's, you know, uh, the Hovon study found that. We found that in one study that a, an isolated DTA um, mutation isn't helpful. A, you know, a, you can see those variants in the context of other things. So if you see a DNMT3A and an MPM1, well, that's MRD, right? But, uh, but it's on its own, a, a DNMT3 or a TET2 doesn't seem to add any. Um, and again, big, big picture, are there going to be examples where that's not the case? Sure. You know, there may, there may be, there's going to be leukemia cases where, you know, the only thing that's on the panel that is in the leukemic clone is a DNMT3A, you know, sure. But, you know, based on the data sets we have now, which are, you know, in the thousands, not in the tens of thousands of patients, um, it seems like it's probably not a, probably not the best target to follow uh, for MID. And that's, you know, that's reflected in the ELM guidelines. Um, you know, I'm hoping before too long, we'll get to a stage where we have, uh, very comprehensive profiling of someone's tumor at diagnosis 
and it will be part of the path report that says, you know, those mutations are or are not part of the predominant clone. And, you know, there were three subclones. You know, you think back, you know, I don't think we had NGS panels. We definitely didn't when I was a resident or a fellow. It wasn't 100 years ago. You know, you imagine 10 years from now, you'll be saying, okay, well, yeah, we've got this leukemia, predominant 100,000 white count, 99,000 of those are this clone. But also on MRD depth, we have clone two, three, four, different immunophenotype, different genetics. This is what you track. Um, and, you know, use module seven for tracking those other clones. And, I, you know, I think we'll, the technology will continue to evolve um, so that we'll, uh, you know, we'll have a better understanding of, of what's there at any time. That's good. Um, so, Chris, I had a question about sensitivity. So when you look at molecular versus flow, uh, what is the comparison of sensitivity, including, you know, things like limit of detection or limit of quantification between the two techniques? Is it a simple answer or, or, or is it more complex depending on the molecular subtypes we are looking for and the technology we are using? Absolutely. Um, so um, uh, Brent Wood's a guy I like a lot for Flow at the Hutch, who's done a lot of the COG stuff. And, you know, he essentially says, I don't understand the question. When you say what's the limited detection of his, uh, his assay, he's like, you know, it, it doesn't make sense from the, the biology. There's some, there's some immunophenotypes where you have a very you know, very clear separation between normal and autopoiesis. And it's really, you know, it's so different from normal that he can say, okay, with high certainty, there's a small population of events where it's one in a hundred thousand different from others. There's others where there's more subtle differences and it's really, a, um, uh, he really can't get to that level of sensitivity in a, in, in a particular patient. Um, and so I think we like to, uh, especially with quantitative tests like this, to put a metric on and say, well, this test must be this. And when we think about, you know, clinical chemistry or something like this, we like to measure and analyze. But they, they, you know, the, the fact is there's still, there's still a fair amount of art in, in flow cytometry. Um, and then in NGS, I think we, a molecular, we can certainly measure analytes um, and the analytical validation is, uh, you know, some you know, work we just showed at ASCO, for example, where you can show correlation between digital PCR and NGS, ensuring you're measuring the same thing. But the clinical implications of that um, may be different, right? And I think this is something, you know, you know you've you now, uh, now fortunate to be struggling with in, in myeloma, where you're down to the one in a, one in a million, one in 10 million. Uh, you know, what does that really mean when you have uh, low levels? So again, you know, uh, I think for the trainees out there, when you hear about consensus criteria, I wouldn't think of it as a defined wisdom I'd, I'd see it as compromise and so it's comp you know it's something that uh, nobody at the table agrees with but we uh, we can all agree to disagree at a number and so for the ELM we picked 0.1 percent uh, as a threshold because it was there was a lull in the arguing for a minute I think uh, you know over the months and months of uh, generating those guidelines where we could all uh, kind of agree some, you know, some people strongly disagreed um, that we should have a lower limit, but I think on average, most people thought that was a reasonable starting point for, for LOD, you know. So having said that, I disagree with that. I have data that going deeper is informative uh, and we just presented data at ASH, uh, sorry, at ASCO, where going to one in 10,000, so 10 times deeper than that, uh, was informative for MPM1 and ITD. Um, so like all these things, it's going to be, um, 
uh, it's going to be changing over time. And just as, you know, just as the therapies change, the tests are going to change over time and the, uh, the accepted thresholds are going to change. And, you know, I imagine, although we don't have data for this yet, it's also going to be treatment specific and time point specific. And so it may be, uh, you don't need such a, um, a rigorous threshold early on in treatments where you're really just trying to separate an initial treatment effect. But then later on, when you've completed treatment, you may, maybe that's the point where you need very, very sensitive uh, detection if you want to get any kind of lead time before kind of what we want. And so um, I think it's going to be an evolving question. And my, my hope is it'll be something like, um, uh, you know, for, I, you, I, you both do oncology training where you did a, like an oncotype DX for breast cancer. Nobody knows what the gene expression profile is of those, you know, 21 genes, right? No one says, oh, it's a CT value of, you know, whatever in gene number four. And so add the coefficients and we need to, we need to simplify it. And so I, I want to get to a stage where physicians don't have to be amateur MRD experts to do this, right? They can plug in their patient's information into something like an IPSS and store with an MRD thing and say, given what we know, given the priors, given the features of that cancer uh, and given the treatment they've received, what does this test result mean for me? And what are my, what are my odds? How does that change my, uh, uh, my prior or what, uh, uh, what are my expectations are for what comes next? Um, and, you know, we need, a, we need an MRD score going forward that, that, that simplifies this. You're, you're all too busy. We're all seeing too many patients and we, we want to give good answers. And so it's on, it's on us as a community, as a translational physician scientist to make it easier. Our job shouldn't be to make it more complicated. We should make it, uh, we should, you know, you're all smart people. We need to give you tests which are good enough that you can use in, in a complicated practice of medicine. Yeah, no, thanks for the answer. I mean, in, in myeloma, we are, I think, lucky to have the, as you said, the FDA approved test and the single marker. But again, we are struggling with the same question that whether sensitivity of one in 10 to the power minus five or minus six, which one should we use to, you know, say somebody's MRD negative versus positive. Yeah. Uh, currently, FDA guidance is minus 10 power minus five, but, you know, some people believe that maybe we should go deeper. So there's lots to yeah. learn for yeah. sure. And, you know, there's also, you know, you, you, one of the things I, I spend a lot of time on panels with the uh, people from the agency. And one of the things I've heard them say repeatedly is the FDA does not regulate the practice of medicine. Right. So they can tell us why, you know, how devices can be. And they do have this guidance in their MID for human malignancies guidance where they say the clinical decision point, point for clinical trials should be a log higher than the technical limit of the assay. And so they really want to get out of that, you know, noise where you have to discordant, you take three replicates and you get three different answers, right? They really want to get out of that pass on distribution and then live very limited quantification noise region and be safely above that, um, as I think we all do. Um, but you could imagine scenarios where um, uh, really looking for, you know, really being at the limit of detection of an assay and someone you're already suspicious in and having a gray zone result may trigger you to do another test, right? Like to, to test again or to do some, something different in a way that wouldn't get you on a clinical trial eligibility or wouldn't get you a, a drug approval, but you may use it in a different way in clinical practice. Um, but I, I think, you know, we need to, um, uh, in myeloma and ALL, you have great transparency on what those tests can do and the performance characteristics of those assays. In AML-MRD, 
you know, I, I don't know what my own institution, right? What, you know, what's inside the box, right? So um, I think we need to get to that kind of level of rigor in, uh, in AML MRD with um, uh, at least through harmonization. So having an agreed set of principles of what we're measuring and how we're measuring. Thank you, Chris. Um, another important clinical question that comes up in routine clinical practices, which time point is ideal for checking MRD in AML? And another thing is how frequently do we monitor? Yeah. Um, so, you know, I say this as a, um, you know, as a physician and with empathy to a patient, you know, if I was getting a, you know, $500,000 transplant, you know, I would want the $500 test as many times as possible, right? Like I would want to know, I would want the full, you know, of course you want the more information. And, um, and so I think, the, the record, you know, I can tell you the ELN recommendations, which are based on the evidence uh, that's been generated that we think, you know, after two cycles of intensive chemotherapy is an informative landmark in terms of we have evidence of, a, of, a, of people in remission being able to be stratified at that level. And then at the pre-transplant time point being informative because again, because it's been collected, because the data has been collected. And then um, really a compromise based on what's available and what's in the typical CBC monitoring frequency to say, you know, every three months or so for the period where the most risk of relapse, you know, there's been mathematical modeling of that done um, some years ago by uh, a Danish group that says this is actually wildly divergent interval frequencies. If you were really gonna do this in a, um, from first principles way, you would monitor a, a flip free ITD much more frequently than you would an inversion 16, where we know some of those creeping slow relapses can take six months, where an ITD comes back, you know, so almost overnight, right? You can, you can have someone come back. And so we're not in a stage where we're personalizing the monitoring frequency based on the molecular subtypes of AML yet, and partly because it's a rare disease. And so we have these generic, what's practical guidelines, like how often will someone come in from a marrow? Like probably no more than every three months. So, you know, it's okay, that sounds reasonable. How often can someone come to the clinic and get blood? Probably every month. And so one of the challenges I have just as a thought experiment with the lab was just, just, just blow all that up, right? I just forget about what the constraints are of the medical practice. What if, you know, what if we had an Amazon drone and I'm not endorsing Amazon as a government worker, but, you know, some, some company that, you know, you could prime your test to get a, a slap on patch and get blood draws daily, right? Would that help? What would the optimal monitoring frequency be just from first principles? And you know, would it, you know, would it would we rather have a small amount of volume daily? Would we rather have a, a leukophoresis once a month? Would we rather have a marrow and a total body pet, you know, once every six months? Like what would that be? And just to get people to brainstorm what that would really look like for the optimal monitoring strategy. And what we always come back to is we just don't know. We don't have enough data collected to really reliably say for all the molecular subtypes uh, what, what the right approach is. And so what we've done to make it a, to make some progress and to make it a tractable problem is to just pick um, subsets of disease biology and say, okay, well, let's answer the question for a small subset. Uh, we'll just, we'll break the problem down. We're gonna miss a lot of the complexity and we'll do the, you know, the typical, uh, scientists think of telling stories that may or may not translate to medicine, but at least we'll, we'll, at least we'll answer some of the questions. And so that's what we've been doing recently with MPM1 and ITD, really saying these are important things. It covers a lot of cases. 
let's at least try and understand for one time point what it looks like for these uh, for these two mutations. Right. So uh, I had a question about the, you know, regarding MRD assessment in bone marrow versus peripheral blood. You know, as you said that, you know, if uh, we can do MRD in peripheral blood, for example, you know, patients can come for a blood draw every month, you know, but bone marrow, it's it's definitely a more invasive procedure. So do you think, um, you know, uh, MRD can be checked in peripheral blood in AML? And also, do you think the test thresholds or the performance characteristics may differ based on bone marrow versus peripheral blood? Is there any data on that? Yeah, absolutely. So there, there's, uh, there's actually great data on this and I'd love to get some more. Um, um, but, you know, in, in, in some cases, NPM1 would be an example where peripheral blood is actually more informative than marrow. Marrow is often still positive during treatment and the clearance of the blood is actually the more informative compartment uh, to look in. It. You know, it actually gives you a gives you a useful threshold that just so happens to, uh, to work with our clinical you know, outcome. Um, in general, I think the, the ballpark, and again, this is very broad averages, is that um, uh, for molecular mutations, we think there's probably uh, about tenfold greater um, burden from an from a aspirate than from blood. Just in general, you know, there's wide, wide confidence intervals around that uh, estimate, but we say it's, a, you know, probably you get a log deeper sensitivity by taking a marrow sample. Um, uh, but it doesn't mean that the marrow sample is, the, is necessarily always the right sample to take. And I think uh, the amount of material that we can collect it and the frequency of testing can really mitigate a lot of those differences. So, you know, a, I would rather test someone's blood weekly than test their marrow every three months. Right. If I was, yeah. if, I was if this was me and I, you know, want to do what I'm asking, one of you guys to monitor my MRD, you know, I would, I would be, I'll be handing over a, you know, a vial of blood every uh, every week for you to test and, uh, and do which testing. Because, you know, if it's positive in blood, it's positive, right? So, um, you know, for the test. And what that what that means in terms of where you are in treatment and what comes next. Um, uh, but I think there's a, uh, there's going to be circumstances where it's going to be important to do a marrow still. Um, but we're definitely pushing to a future where we can have blood-based testing um, for a lot of reasons. I think um, the pandemics made us think about just the structure of um, the structure of how we deliver medical care. I think as therapies um, uh, switch more to oral therapies and our conception of what it means to be an acute leukemia doc changes over time, you know, from, you know, meeting the helicopter on the roof on a Friday night where it's, you know, go, go, go. And, you know, we put in the central line and the shyly and go to like, okay, take two pills and call me in a, in a week for, a, you know, your, 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 your blood test, right? Like, you know, um, we're, we're changing what it means to treat leukemia. And, you know, you know with oral hypermethylinated agents coming along, uh, BCL2 inhibition, targeted therapy, um, you can imagine where people are coming back for transfusions and supportive care rather than for the therapy itself. And so how does monitoring fit into that? Is that something you get, you know, we take some blood before we give you some blood? Like, what does that look like? Um, or is it, you know, is it, a, is it something you do at home and you don't need to come in so frequently? And so, you know, future casting 10, 20 years from now, uh, we really need to find a way that it can be blood-based and minimally invasive uh, testing. Yeah. A follow-up to that, uh, what you said about peripheral blood, 
um, which um, solid tumor physicians are already using is the circulating tumor DNA. Do you think that in the future we will be able to use um, circulating tumor DNA to measure uh, the residual disease? Yeah, it's it's. I find this fascinating, and um, uh, I have to pull myself back into the problem we're working on. Um, but you know, there's this huge investment for you know. So those those you know who are solely in heme malignancies, uh, you know, you really can't underestimate the scale of the investment in in both prediction of cancer development and monitoring of solid tumor uh, patients. Um, um, and so we have a we have a disease that circulates. We don't need circulating tumor DNA. We have circulating tumor, right? So we have, you know, the, the blood is the, is the tumor. Um, and so we have a very different conceptual problem where they're trying to get very, very rare traces of, a, uh, of something at a distal site. We're accessing one of the compartments of the disease. And so a, a shortage of starting material isn't the problem for us. And so a lot of the, a lot of the, uh, the, technical problems they're trying to solve in the circulating tumor DNA space really aren't problems for us. You know, I, I have as much, I have as much DNA as I can use in a blood draw in a, you know, in my, you know, we do very sensitive testing, but when you back calculate how much blood we're using in that testing, it's about 14 microliters of blood, right? So if I asked a patient, you know, I want, I can really tell you much better how good of remission you're in. Could you spare, could you spare a five mil, of course you can like take one of the <laughs> taking right so, so like a limitation in the in the starting material isn't isn't the problem for uh for aml where it is in the solid tumor whether the amount of circulating uh uh dna that's tumor specific it can be rare and they're really talking about can you correctly read one variance you know in one molecule we have many many molecules where we're uh, uh we can assay having said that you know aml is a rare disease it seems way too common for you know, hemolignancies docs like us, but actually in the big picture, uh, the, you know, the scale of 360 million people in America, we're talking about 20,000 patients a year. It's a super rare disease for development of tests for companies. Um, and so my um, current uh, philosophical bend is to get, just get stuff done. Right. It's not about ego. It's not about papers. It's not about academic prestige. It's like, how do we get stuff done? How do we make it real? And if we can find some way to use existing infrastructure and existing logistics and the community oncologist who knows how to sell, how to send off a test where he has it set up for his lung cancer patient, his breast cancer patient, his colon cancer patient, and his AML patient, and it's the same test and the same workflow and the same billing and the same everything else, um, I absolutely want us to be part of that. And if it means, you know, my, you know, our fancy tests we've spent time developing aren't the test, great. You know, I, you know, it's more important that the test gets sent and it's accessible. Um, I think some of the challenges are um, we, because we don't have a, we don't have the same problem they have in, uh, in solid tumor. We haven't collected the material in the same way. So the pre-analytics, you know, we're not collecting tubes to collect cell-free DNA in a, in a rigorous way. We're not doing those, those comparisons between whole blood and marrow and cell-free DNA and have large biobanks where we can compare between them. And so the data, you know, I get asked this question a lot and people often tell me they have data. And then I look at the data and it's an Excel spreadsheet with, you know, 28 patients on. I say, well, you know, this isn't, 
this isn't going to cut it, right? Like this is not going to convince a multinational billion dollar company to get into a rare disease space. It, we need much more convincing data. Um, and so that's something we're, we're pushing now. We're collecting the right kind of sample type. Um, and so um, uh, there's some forward thinking people in the transplant community who have really um, got behind the idea that if we want to make it possible to test with high quality tests in these rare diseases, we need to make it easy for people to test their test in the samples we have. And the way with Biobank traditionally has been siloed into academic medical centers and it's, you know, professor so-and-so has got a special collection and you can't have it unless you, you know, you put it on the paper and blah, blah, blah. Um, or it's large consortium and it may not be the sample type that's collected in the way that you need it or the annotation isn't there. Um, so really, although it's not the time points you need, you know, it's a diagnostic, but not a remission, et cetera, et cetera. So really we need to prospectively collect samples in a way that we can then test these tests on. And so we are doing that. That's a protocol that's going to open in a, in a, in a month uh, across the US where we're going to collect samples, including in the form where they could be tested with self-DNA tests. Um, because that for me, if I can, if I can set it up, so it's a, a commercial or several commercial tests that are already currently available and uh, you know the guidelines become yeah you should send that test great you know there's other problems in AML I can move on I can I'll go to the beach and retire you know I'm happy to step out you know um, and for me that would be a massive win I think it's going to be complicated because it's not a completely analogous problem and I think there's a um, uh, it's the juice to squeeze ratio it's a rare disease there it's the problems they're solving are pretty similar problems across solid tumors and we're going to ask for a lot of differences in the AML space and i see that as part of the role of me and the government and you know it's filling the market gap essentially right you know i can it may not be there may not be a strong business case to make a test for AML but if i can make it easy for those companies to say, okay, well, he's generated, he did the methylation data, he's already generated the data for us, and he's already shown a pilot with a thousand patients, and he's already, you know, make it so easy that companies jump in and, and take over from there. Um, that would be a good use, I think, of public, uh, of public funding to say, you know, we got it to a point where it then became clinical practice. Uh, and so that's really the, the focus at the moment. But it's, it's not there yet. I would say for the fellows listening, you can't, you, you can order that test, but I don't know what it's going to tell you. Don't don't email me and ask me what it means because I, I don't. <laughs> yeah, all right. So I, I think we had an excellent discussion on the methodology's time points and the, and the sample types for MRD and AML. Now let's uh, switch gears to the other hot topic, which is treatment or intervention in patients in whom uh, we detect MRD and AML. So um, Chris, this question always you know, comes up in clinical practice, as you know, that should we consider patients with MRD positive disease in AML as high risk and consider them for treatment escalation, for example, considering an allogeneic transplant if they are MRD positive and transplant eligible. Uh, in other words, you know, are there any interventions in patients who are MRD positive in AML that have been shown to improve overall survival by flipping them from MRD positive to MRD negative by adding another intervention? Yeah, so that's the hope. And, uh, you know, I've become more and more um, of a um, uh, skeptic. You know, while I'm an advocate for that we should do the testing, the clinical utility of the testing and what it means beyond prognostication and fate, I think we need to generate data. And 
uh, one immaturity I think I had during medical school was I was really um, pushing back against this idea that you needed RCTs to generate high quality evidence and that the importance of, of randomization. I am now a convert. I am absolutely a convert of having randomized controlled trials to answer important questions. It's so easy to, to fool yourself. There's so much variation and heterogeneity in, in these diseases. And so I think what you've just described is an excellent question for an RCT, right? Is someone in an, you know, so to, to, to formalize it, someone who's uh, intermediate risk, ELN intermediate risk, who wouldn't have a transplant, otherwise have a transplant indication or be on the, the edge, um, but is MRD positive. Would that, you know, a normal karyotype MPM1 patient who's still MPM1 positive after two cycles of induction, should you should that person be offered an hour of transplant in the absence of any other risk factors? I would love to know. I think that would be a great RCT question. And I think, you know, part of the, you know, the way I have a lab working nights and weekends is we want to make those tests available. We want to see that trial and we want to see that evidence. Um, uh, there are there are pushes now to try and generate that, you know, to do informative randomized phase twos where we have these, you know, so the NCI Precision Medicine Initiative is with the cooperative groups is launching Mylomatch uh, later this year, whether to try and answer some of these questions are just key subsets. Uh, again, part of the issue is um, it's a rare, really complex set of diseases. So getting enough people to properly answer the question, you know, if you really want normal karyotype MTM1, younger patients, you're going to do all the same kind of transplants. So you're going to have, you know, all myeloablative, you know, so one, you know, under 60, under 65 with good performance that you really start whittling down the numbers and it really needs to be a team effort. It can't be a single center or even, you know, even one cooperative group. And so uh, I think we absolutely need the data from that. I think the evidence we have um, hints at a possibility that it could be beneficial uh, to treat those patients more uh, intensively. And we have things like the Jemima data where they uh, allocated rather than randomized. So allocated people who are MRD positive to an allo transplant. And if you're MRD negative, you've got an auto transplant. And the survival was you know, pretty similar between the groups. It's great study, but it's not it's not a randomized trial, right? Um, I think the Vilaza study or the Vilaza studies, again, single arm studies where they're intervening based on MRD with a hypermethylated agent um, seems to uh, improve, you know, seem to delay the onset of um, of relapse with uh, with intervention. Um, but again, not not randomized trials. And so uh, I think the questions you described need need uh, randomized trials of, of each subset at, at that particular time point. But that's, you know, that's, that's the hope. And I would say, you know, your question was a good one because you're actually asking me about clearance of MRD. And I would say we shouldn't care about clearance of MRD. I think there's this intellectual, we think, oh, MRD is a bad thing. We must clear the MRD. I, I, I don't know what the MRD means. I can clear the MRD, right? Like I can, you know, you know, we give uh, high dose cytoxin or something, right? Like, you know, you can get make the MRD go away. It doesn't mean the patient's going to live longer or better. And so I think the biomarker helps you identify a group at high risk. You then intervention, you then do an intervention. Then you need to generate the evidence of what it means for the biomarker to be there or not be there. And you can imagine situations where you make the MRD go away for a period of time, but the patient still relapses and dies. That That's not a win, right? So... I think the idea of MRD uh, 
um, interventions, it, it's helpful to think about thing we talked about at the start. Are you talking about the test or are you talking about the patient? Because you can make that sample of blood be negative, right? But if the patient still got disease in the other arm, so you didn't take the blood from, like, you know, that's not a win. Um, and so uh, that's the way, that's the way I see MID being used. And we really want to get robust tests, at least for things like MDM1 and ITD online pretty quickly so that people can do those trials. I, I really want to see those trials uh, um, to really scale um, uh, the interventions that we do. It's so easy to fool ourselves in oncology and we were all full of hope and we want the best for our patients. I see time and time again, you know, this is highly, I just read a paper before coming on here. The, these results are highly promising. Like, well, but are they? You know, like a single arm trial, I, I can't tell. <laughs> you know, I'd like it to be promising, but um, I just don't know. And so I think that's my hope for MID is we can really get a group which has similarly high risk and do an intervention and see exactly what that intervention does uh, for those patients. Um, and so uh, uh, watch this space, I'd say. Uh, but that's, that's, the, that's the intent. No, th thanks. And I think you covered some of the very important topics which we are struggling with in myeloma as well. So thanks for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, I'd also, I'll just add to it as well. You know, I think um, MRD test negative patients may also benefit from therapy. I think, you know, one of the misconceptions is, you know, uh, that everything's going to be okay if you're MRD negative. And we know that's not true, right? Like we know there's a, an AML at a landmark time point. If you're MRD negative, you may still have a 20, 30% chance of relapse after a transplant. And so they may be the people who really benefit with, you know, the test negative, but actually the patients that might be positive, but, you know, those patients on maintenance therapy may be the ones who really, really should be aiming for. So rather, rather than there be a goal of therapy to be a way to, uh, to tune the kind of maintenance you do, it, you know, it, yeah, they still need something, but it's maybe not just the same as uh, someone who's uh, got a higher disease burden. Absolutely. Um, and uh, Chris, can you briefly comment about, um, your study at ASCO about the pre-measure study uh, where you um, had a multi-center evaluation of prognostic significance of MRD, uh, especially prior to allo uh, transplantation and first remission. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, pre-transplant has been one of these time points that people have really focused on. I think it's such a, such a meaningful time. And it's often, you know, for me, it's the time where, you know, I, I hand over to my colleagues to they go over to the transplant side, you know, it's, it, it is a, it really is a landmark. Um, 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 and so a lot of the studies have used that time point um, as a, uh, as a way to test MID and show uh, significance. And it's, it, it's something we've been, we've been interested in for, uh, you know, since those labs started. Um, CRBMTR biobanks, as you, as you probably know, a sample from before conditioning a sample of blood before conditioning, uh, and they have this great clinical annotation. So this was a, this was one of these experiments where it's a, um, uh, it's generating data based on what's available. And so CRBMTR um, collects mutation data. You know, you have these data entry coordinators who will enter. Does the person have a FLT3 ITD? Do they have an NPM1? Do they have an IDH1? Do they have an IDH2? Are the, the buttons? Do they have a kit? Are the buttons they can press on the form? Um, and so that's data that's available. We can see who has those baseline mutations. And so it seemed to us an opportunity to generate some data before we get into a perspective trial, which is uh, the measure trial. It's pre-measure, right? We're measuring before transplant. Um, um, sorry, fire alarm's going off behind me. Um, um, and so this was a study where we, we went to the CRBMTR. The pre-measure study 
took uh, samples from 1,075 patients uh, transplanted between 2013 and, and uh, 2019, um, who either had an NPM1 mutation and or a FLT3 ITD and or a FLT3 TKD, IDH1, IDH2 or a KITS mutation. And that was just based on the annotation that was available and pulling those, uh, pulling those samples available. Looked at blood uh, and really uh, what we found from that study was uh, testing for NPM1 or FLT3 ITD um, uh, using highly sensitive tests down to one in 10,000 10, um, could really risk stratify the patients. So it's, a, it's about 15% of the patients had detectable NPM1 or, or ITD despite being in a CR1 um, and had just an incredibly high risk of, uh, of relapse, 80% um, uh, plus. Um, and so really identifying a group where you can imagine the studies uh, like Raj just mentioned, you know, where you can you can you intervene and do something different in those patients? We have we have the BMT uh, 1506 study, the guilt risk and maintenance study coming on, which will have MRD uh, at that pre-transplant stratified at the pre-transplant time point. Um, but this is really just to generate sufficient sized data set that we could start thinking about moving this out of papers into something that's good for patients. And you know, anecdotes of a, you know, a few dozen patients or, you know, a hundred patients or two, it just isn't enough to take things forward, right? You know, you, you look at patient in the eye, you want to know you've got a robust data set behind you. And that's hundreds of patients, I think, given the heterogeneity. And, you know, so we have, you know, over 500 patients with an NPM1, over 500, 600 patients with an ITD. You know, really, you know, it's, it's more, at the time, I think it's probably still true, it's more NGS MRD data than is in the literature. Um, in, in one study, right? So just to say, okay, for these groups, we we know what, what it looks like for NPM1 and ITD. Um, and the hope is we're just going to go forward and do that for other groups now um, and at other time points. So this was pre-transplant. The measure study is going to collect samples post-transplant and for all mutation subtypes. Um, we'll really start building up the evidence base where you can say confidently, what well, we know in someone in your situation, they... The, uh, the likelihood is you have a twofold higher chance of relapse than someone who tests negative at this point in time. Um, and we st we're starting to generate those numbers now. Thanks, Chris, for the great discussion today. I think we learned a lot, and I think it was a very helpful discussion, not only for MRD in AML, but in general in MRD in heme malignancies. We look forward to having you again on the podcast in future to discuss more about MRD in AML. Thank thanks a lot for, uh, for your time. Oh, delighted to talk to you. Thanks so much for uh, for chatting. I could I could talk about this for hours. You you've only got an hour, but uh, yeah. I, uh... <laughs>